Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 404. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Full pack show today. I'll tell you what's coming in. First off, end of the month, that means Science News with Jim Campanella. Then we're having a kind of little spotlight on an author. We have two stories by this author and a little interview with Jeremy Sal, our assistant editor, talking to the author. And that author is Alex Schwarzman. That is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Don't forget, though, this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology. 20 years in the IT industry, helping you with all your little kind of quirks and qualms in the computer industry. If you've got a problem, go over and see Octagon Technology. Big thank you to Clive and Diane. So I think we will, as usual, kick off this show with Science News. Our good friend, Mr. J.J. Campanella. Jim, sir. Greetings and glutinous lipidations, my nasophoretically cretaceous listeners. And welcome to the September 2015 Science News Update. I'm your host for this polyamorous, sublocutionary science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Welcome back to school, kiddies. I'm sure that a lot of parents are letting out sighs of relief. I sure as heck know I am. Let's just get to it. We don't need those stinking preliminaries. You know how I love me some world records? Well, here's the latest. What's the biggest known structure in the universe? Astronomers used to think it was a filament of galaxies known as the Sloan Great Wall, about 1.4 billion years across. But recent research suggests a different structure that's even bigger, and its size has astronomers scratching their head. The Hercules Corona Borealis Great Wall is about 4 billion light years across, and it is now the biggest thing yet discovered. It's so big that some astronomers do not even believe it can exist. An international team of astronomers has found what appears to be the largest feature in the observable universe, a ring of nine gamma-ray bursts, galaxies, which are five billion light-years across. The scientists, led by Professor Lajos Balax of Concoli Observatory in Budapest, reported on their find in August. Gamma-ray bursts are the most luminous events in the universe, releasing as much energy in a few seconds as the sun does over 10 billion years. They are thought to be the result of massive stars collapsing into black holes, 
Their huge luminosity helps astronomers to map out the location of distant galaxies. The bursts that make up the newly discovered ring were observed using a variety of space and ground-based observatories. They appear to be very similar distances from us, about 7 billion light-years away, in a circle about 36 degrees across the sky, or more than 70 times the diameter of the full moon. Professor Balaz says that, quote, This implies that the ring is more than 4 to 5 billion light-years across and there is only a 1 in 20,000 chance that the bursts are in this distribution by chance, unquote. Most current astronomical models suggest that the structure of the cosmos is kind of uniform on the largest scales. The cosmological principle is backed up by observations of the early universe and its microwave background radiation. Other results, more recent, suggest that this new discovery challenged that principle which sets a theoretical limit of about 1.2 billion light-years for the largest structures. The newly discovered ring is almost five times that big. Balaz says, quote, If the ring represents a real spatial structure, then it has to be seen nearly face-on because of the small variations of the gamma-ray burst distances around the object's center. The ring, though instead, could be a projection of a sphere, where the Gamma-ray bursts all occurred within a 250 million year period, a short time scale compared with the age of the universe, unquote. Balaz comments, quote, if we are right, the structure contradicts the current models of the universe. It was a huge surprise to find something this big, and we still don't quite understand how it could come to exist at all, unquote. As I said, there is some controversy here. I have a quote from one dissenting astronomer, who asked to remain anonymous. The astronomer was quite unimpressed with Balaz, to say the least. Here's what he said. Quote, Big friggin' deal. So he detected nine gamma-ray bursts, and if you use a marker to connect dots, they form a circle. I can see more than nine gamma-ray bursts in my instruments, and they don't form a circle. However, being fair, if we accept for the moment Balaz's idea, how can you tell it's a structure? In a real structure, the points are related in one way or another. Here, considering the distances between them, it becomes absurd. To me, it's all just a coincidence. Idiot. Unquote. Whoa, dude. I like when scientists stop being polite and get real. Sorry. Next story. Here's a little something, just to annoy some of you. I rarely mention transgenic plants because the last time I did, several years ago, I talked about this in some detail on the show here, and several listeners freaked out on me and sent me hate mail. However, this story is just too good to ignore. All too often, those who are most vehement about GMO crops bolster their beliefs by insisting that transgenic plants are simply unnatural. Nature would not produce such abominations so why should we put up with it in our grocery stores? In the August issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy, Dr. Tina Kint of Ghent University and her colleagues reported that even wild sweet potatoes are not quite as natural as the environmentalists would make us think. Kint discovered that the sweet potato plant naturally contains genes from agrobacterium tDNA. That is the genetic vector 
which is commonly used to genetically engineer plants nowadays in most laboratories. And they found that this makes the sweet potato a naturally genetically modified plant. The discovery suggests that an early ancestor of the sweet potato came into contact with agrobacterium, upon which something called horizontal gene transfer occurred. Horizontal gene transfer, in one definition, is the transfer of genes between species in this case. The genes have been conserved in the plant genome until this time. The finding adds to the controversial topic of the regulation of genetically modified organisms, especially because consumable plants that have been genetically engineered in the lab using agrobacterium are currently subjected to heavy regulation. Perhaps the most surprising thing is the finding that uh, a gene was disrupted by one of the tDNA insertions. And that phenomenon is deemed unacceptable when making a GMO crop. Kint's study could challenge current views on the biosafety and regulation of GM crops. Hey, look, I said this years ago, and I will repeat it. Humans and nature have been naturally modifying plants for years. The only difference now is that the genetic tools allow us to do it much faster than we would have done it 5,000 years ago. And in this case that we're talking about, it wasn't even humans that did it. It was a natural phenomenon. We see this over and over again, even in my own work. For example, I have an ongoing project at the moment which suggests that a whole family of genes found in modern plants originated in a horizontal transfer of genetic material from soil bacteria to the earliest of plant progenitors. It happens. Okay. Next story, prions. Frankly, I don't remember whether I've spoken to you about prions or not, but let me do that before I tell you the story. It'll make, well, it'll help the story make a little more sense, I think. Prions are not bacteria. They're not alive. They're not even as complex as viruses, which are also not alive. They are something completely different. They are infective proteins that turn good versions of a protein into copies of themselves. Bad proteins. They don't have DNA. They don't have RNA. You could think of them sort of like zombie proteins. Once they get a hold of another protein, they turn them into another infective, pathogenic, zombie version of themselves. Usually these proteins are neural in function. They're found in the brain and the spinal cord. There is a disease which resembles Parkinson's called multiple system atrophy. It's a neurodegenerative disorder. It was first discovered in 1960. And new research suggests that multiple system atrophy is caused by a unique prion. This is the first new prion to be associated with a human disease in 50 years. Fittingly, the new discovery is the work of a research team that includes Dr. Stanley Prusner, the Nobel Prize winner who first identified prions back in 1982. That's what the Nobel Prize was for. Prions have been implicated in several related neural diseases, including scrapies in sheep, bovine spongiform encephalopathy, which most people know as bad cow disease in cattle, and Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which is a prion disease in humans. Dr. Kurt Giles of the University of California, San Francisco, is the senior author of the new research paper, which is entitled Evidence for 
alpha-synuclein prions causing multiple system atrophy in humans with Parkinsonism. The paper appeared August 31st in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The researchers examined 14 human brain homogenous for transmission of the prion to mice already expressing one copy of the alpha-synuclein gene. The alpha-synuclein is the prion protein. They found the mice that ended up with two copies of the prion protein developed neurological dysfunction. The team found that the brains of infected mice contained abnormally high levels of insoluble human alpha-synuclein, and that infected mouse brain tissue could itself spread the disease to other mice. Giles says, Our findings argue that multiple system atrophy is caused by a unique strain of alpha-synuclein prion, which is different from other prions causing spontaneous neurodegeneration in homozygous mice, unquote. Discovery that alpha-synuclein prions can transmit multiple system atrophy raises a public health concern, mainly about treatments and research that involve contact with brain tissue from neurodegenerative patients. This is because standard disinfection techniques that kill microbes do not eliminate prions that cause Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Whether the same challenges hold for alpha-synuclein prions in multiple system atrophy remain to be seen. The authors warn that clinicians and researchers should adopt much more stringent safety protocols when dealing with tissue from patients with multiple system atrophy and other neurodegenerative diseases, many of which they believe may be caused by prions. Giles finishes with this warning, quote, You can't kill a protein. It can stick tightly to stainless steel even when the surgical instrument is cleaned. We're advocating a precautionary approach. People are living longer and likely getting more brain surgeries. Infection with prion-contaminated neural tissue could mean a real worry for infection if we are not careful. Unquote. Huh. This does seem like nasty stuff, doesn't it? The next story also comes from the proceedings of the National Academy from last month. Copying and making DNA in a cell is not a perfect process. And that process of replication occasionally results in a mismatched base pair on the newly constructed strand of DNA, the daughter strand. The cell's repair machinery is able to usually identify this quickly and fix that type of error. But how do you do that repair if you have to identify the new strand? Until recently, it hasn't been entirely clear how the new strand has been identified as opposed to the old strand. Until recently, the consensus was the repair proteins slid up and down the strands of DNA to find a protein that marked the new strand. Now researchers have tracked the repair proteins with fluorescent tags to show that rather than sliding, the proteins stay put and assemble themselves into a filament to reach out and probe the marker. During DNA replication, one in a million base pairs is inserted incorrectly. For example, if A was matched with a G instead of a C. As replication continues, specialized repair proteins follow closely behind to inspect the work and ensure that it's all been done right. When mismatches occur, a protein called MUT-S finds the error, and another protein called MUT-L snips it out. 
And then other proteins can complete the repair and replace the base. Dr. Keith Winnegar of North Carolina State University has now discovered a protein called PCNA that is loaded onto protein in a certain orientation. By observing the PCNA's orientation, the MUT-S and the MUT-L proteins can figure out which strand is the one that was just newly made. Winnegar says PCNA can be up to a thousand base pairs away from where the repair happens. So there's somehow communication across that distance. Unquote. In the absence of MUT-L, MUT-S has been observed to slide along the DNA after identifying mismatches, suggesting that it may slide toward PCNA to probe its orientation and then slide back to perform the repair. To see if they could catch MUT-S in the act of sliding back and forth, Weniger's team used single molecule imaging with fluorescently tagged MUT-S and MUT-L to observe this. The team found that MUT-S actually stays put and instead recruits more MUT-L to its location. Weniger says, quote, This observation supports a model in which MUT-L binds to MUT-S and assembles into a filament-like structure that spans the gap between the mismatch and PCNA to decide which side to repair, unquote. Because MUT-S interactions with DNA mismatches actually lead to repair events only about 20% of the time, the protein's function has been difficult to actually characterize or figure out before now. The last story of the night is about our ancestors. Dr. Lee Berger of the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa, and his colleagues have reported this month on some new ancestors of ours that they have just found. Whether it's ever occurred to you or not, humans are the only species of our kind on Earth left anymore. Dogs and cats have relatives in their genuses. Beetles do. Monkeys do. Um, just about everything on Earth does, but we do not. Homo sapiens are now the only living species in our genus. But as recently as 100,000 years ago, there were several other species that belonged to the genus Homo. Together with modern humans, these extinct human species, our immediate ancestors and their close relatives, are collectively referred to as homonyms. Now Berger and his colleagues report the recent discovery of an extinct species from the genus Homo that has been unearthed from deep underground in what has been named the Dinaledi Chamber in the Rising Star Cave System in South Africa. The species was named Homo naledi. Naledi means star in the Sotho language of South Africa. The unearthed fossils were from at least 15 individuals and include multiple examples of most of the bones in the skeleton. Based on this wide range of specimens from a single site, Berger describes the Homo naledi as being similar in size and weight to a small modern human, with human-like hands and feet. Further, while the skull had several unique features, it had a small brain case that was most similar in size to other early human species that lived between four and two million years ago. Homo naledi's ribcage, shoulders, and pelvis also more closely resembled those of earlier hominin species than those of modern humans. The naledi fossils are the largest collection of a single species of hominin 
that has been discovered in Africa so far. However, since the age of the fossils remains unclear, one of the next challenges will be to date the remains to provide more information about the early evolution of humans and their close relatives. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Keep away from other people's prion-ridden brains. Keep looking for other members of the human genus. They're out there. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go. Jim, what can I say? What can I say, sir? Thank you so much. Very nice to have you on, as usual. So, like I say, we have a little spotlight on an, an author, Alex Schwarzman. And Jeremy's got together with Alex, and they've had a little chat. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play Jeremy's little interview. Then we've got a main fiction by Alex, or two stories by Alex. So I don't want to kind of give much away of the interview, so I'll just kind of leave it to Jeremy, and Jeremy will kind of just take you through. <laughs> Hello everyone, this is Jeremy Zahl from Starship Sofa and today we've got another really great guest on. Alex Schwartman is a writer and editor of humorous science fiction fantasy. In 2014, he won the uh, WSFA Small Press Award for Short Fiction. He's the author of more than 80 stories full of dad jokes, grandmas, monsters and aliens and puns that everyone laughs at politely. He is also the lead head editor of the Unidentified Flying Objects anthology series. And this year, the anthology will publish pieces of darkly humorous fiction by the likes of George R. R. Martin, Neil Gaiman, and even a TV show producer. Even better, like me, he's Eastern European, automatically makes him twice as awesome. Alex, thank you so much for coming on today. Hi, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. No worries, not at all. So tell us, why did you decide to pick humor to work in, like with your writing and editing? So as a writer, I came to it uh, entirely by accident. I never imagined myself to be a, a humor writer at all. I certainly can't do stand-up or, or be funny on demand at all. So at one point, I needed to, an idea for a story, and I came up with a somewhat humorous idea. And I decided to just go with it and was very surprised at how easy it was for me to write that as opposed to writing the more serious fare that you would typically read in a science fiction magazine. And it was actually... It actually sold, so I wrote more of it, and I continued to write more of it, and I found that um, you know I had a, some somewhat of a predisposition toward that kind of story, and so um, as I started producing more of it, and I needed places to submit those stories, I quickly realized that a lot of the science fiction markets are not particularly friendly to humor. Um, either they don't want the lighthearted, uh, you know, sort of you know silly, funny stories at all. Or they want very little of them not to dilute their TOC too much with that kind of material. And there isn't, or wasn't, I should say, a professional market that specialized in this kind of material. So when I was thinking about uh, an idea for an anthology to do, uh, that was that just sort of was there for me. You know, I was, I was sure it's the kind of stuff that I would like to read if it, uh, if it was available by somebody else. And since it wasn't, I figured I might as well try and create one. And uh, the first anthology was, was then received very well, uh, prompt, you know, prompting me to turn it into a series. And we've been uh, uh, ongoing now for four years and hopefully for many more to come. 
Yeah, I was just actually wondering why you'd um, uh, took the time out to, on top of your own writing, to really go out and make an anthology of your own, especially one that's dedicated to humor. I mean, it's not exactly something common. And a lot of people, it's a hit or miss for a lot of people, but obviously it's been hit for enough people and it's worked. And now you're in your fourth year, correct? That's right. This is this UFO four comes out uh, this November. Mm-hmm. I'm also doing another humorous anthology that'll come out even earlier. I'm doing a reprint anthology called Funny Science Fiction. A very, very, uh, a very imaginative title, right yeah. there. I can't imagine what it's. I can't imagine what you're after at all. So I don't know what, it, what it's going to be about yet at all. But uh, uh, that's going to be a reprint anthology, and that's going to be an ebook only. So we can uh, you know turn it around much, much faster. Hmm. Uh, my sort of transition to the editor comes from just general interest in the industry. I wanted to see how it works. I wanted to see what it feels like to put something together and to be on the other side of the uh, of all those rejections. Uh, so I figured that I would try my hand at it. And um, thankfully, it's worked well, uh, at least well enough, as you say, to, uh, to where the sales justify uh, creating more of these anthologies. And uh, it's kind of carved a niche for me in, the, uh, in, our, uh, in our fandom. I mean, very few people, um, there are some certainly, but very few people are known mostly for their writing and humor editing. And so, uh, and so it's kind of uh, uh, something that I can lay claim to, uh, you know, that sets me apart a little bit. Mm. It's always good to stand out, I suppose. So anyway, this year you've gone for the darker and, be, to be quite honest, the better side of humor – uh, hey, I'm Australian. I can't help it, but we love dark humor down here. But yeah, you've gone for dark humor. Is there any reason why? Uh, so I am not very comfortable with dark humor at all. Uh, personally, uh, the only darkness I want is just enough darkness so I can hide the banana peel. But uh, my approach to it has been uh, just like with the very first anthology. I, I didn't know my thing. It's something that I wanted to try my hand on and my hands on and so I, uh, I I went ahead with it your anthology was the same thing uh, I'm embracing something that I didn't think I'm particularly good at to see if I could learn more about that side of humorous writing uh, you know and, and sort of if I can put together as good an anthology as I could with the more traditional types of humor and the jury is still out we'll see how uh, we'll see how the reaction is going to be to, to this volume certainly uh, again the previous ones were, were well received but uh uh, it's an interesting, you know, it's, it's an interesting way to do something different. But I will be going back to the more traditional humor again for UFO Five. Okay. All right. And speaking of which, which is the most absurd submission you've come from? Because I'm sure you I recall you said that you received hundreds. And so, what's the most like craziest stuff that you've ever had, like gotten from someone? Well, uh, we do receive every few months uh, either query letters or outright manuscripts uh, emailed to us that are about UFO sightings and uh, conspiracies and phenomena like that, uh, with those people completely ignoring the fact that nothing we publish has nothing to do with actual UFOs. I mean, they literally, their research has literally stopped at our title. So I think those are probably among the most ridiculous. Um, Other than that, uh, we get about 800 submissions per volume, so that's a lot of stories to choose from. And uh, some are great and some are not so great. But for the most part, uh, we've been spared the real crazies because we're still a young market. And I think most of the people who know about the younger, newer markets are, uh, you know, the people who do their research and who understand a little bit more. Uh, you know, they're not, you know, the really crazy ones are the ones who are sending their submissions to 
FNSF and analog, and places have been around long enough for them to know about them. All right, so it's your uh, spared of most the uh, crazy crazies then. Also, I hear tell that the real crazies are sending a lot of submissions to the horror markets. Oh, yes. To where some of my friends who slushed there and, and edited there, their eyes literally bleed at times. But because we do humor, I'm spared some of that uh, very uncomfortable stuff as well. I'm sure, though, that naming it dark humor will automatically presume that you, they order, you automatically want, like, the mind of a psychopath or, like, some, like, really twisted horror with just some, a few jokes in between. Because I know someone who... Who told me that told me something similar? I was a little worried about that, but it hasn't been too bad. Uh, I think the most common problem that I get with the stories is that the definition of them as humor has to be stretched really a lot. I mean, sometimes I don't find them funny at all, and I'm not sure if the author feels that they're funny or they're just sort of you know slinging it at the at whatever market they can and just to see what happens, um, or is just Humor is extremely subjective, right? So what you find funny may not be something that I find funny. And so I have to go with my gut. And a lot of the time, I will pass on stories that other people may find hilarious. And in fact, a lot of the stories that I've passed on have been published in you know very successful, well-known markets. And I don't regret it. I still think that as an editor, I have to buy stories that I really believe in. And also, just because I pass on the story doesn't mean that it's not good. It just means it wasn't right for me. Mm. Yeah, and like also, it's your it's your anthology, it's your money. At the end of the day, it's your it's your pick. Um, another thing, you've actually managed to get stories by both George R. R. Martin, Neil Gaiman, and I believe one of the producers of The Big Bang Theory. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Eric Kaplan. Is, oh, okay. Uh, he's a co-executive producer on The Big Bang Theory, and he uh, also won an Emmy for his writing of Futurama. So I was very excited, especially to get a story from him, because I've always been interested in seeing if we can get some very funny people outside of the sort of the typical science fiction and fantasy, uh, you know, circles to write something. For example, wouldn't it be great if we could get uh, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson to write a humorous science fiction story? I'd love to read that. However, I have no way to reach Neil deGrasse Tyson, and if I did, he probably would laugh at my offer of, you know, several cents a word. So um, I was very fortunate uh, to be introduced to uh, to Eric by a common friend of ours, uh, who is also an editor who published a story by him previously, and so I reached out to him, and he was willing to write for us. And uh, the story of his is very interesting. It's something that might belong in the New Yorker more than it belongs in the science fiction magazine. But it does have a science fiction element, and uh, uh, I, I liked it, and I'm very curious to see what uh, what the readers think about it as well. Mm. It's definitely different. Yeah, and how did you reach out to uh, the likes of Neil Gaiman as well? Uh, so with Neil, uh, it's, I actually messaged him on Twitter to, to find out what the best way to reach out to him is, and he said to talk to his agent. So that's exactly what I did, and I was able to uh, arrange everything through his agent. Uh, with George Martin, he's a lot more approachable. I've met him uh, in real life in a bunch of times because he goes to science fiction conventions. So I was able to just email him directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sound, sounds pretty good. I mean, like you've got quite a bit of names on there. And I want to ask, is it difficult to make the balance between uh, buying stories by uh, big names or just no-namers, but because you like the... Uh, not no-namers per se, but like because you like the work of that these smaller names do... Is it hard to balance it out? I mean, you you could get so much more attention if you went for the bigger names for and purchased the stories that were published at 
massive venues, but instead you've decided to go for some of the names on there I've n- I don't recognize at all. And and, I, well, honest, and to be honest, that's a good thing. Like, if, is it hard to keep that balance between deciding if you want quality or if you just want the big names? I don't think it's hard at all because, look, uh, when you start out an anthology, you budget yourself uh, both in terms of money and in terms of space. So I know it's going to be an approximately 80,000-word book. And so when I invite uh, headliners to submit an anthology, when I invite the big-name authors, I ask them for stories to be no longer than a certain length. And, of course, some of them do go over that anyway, but some of them also uh, come in under. And so on average, I know what percentage of the book the headliner stories will, will, will make up. And so the rest of that space is available to everybody else. And I think it's hugely important to have uh, open submission windows and to, to be able to publish people who are either brand new or people who are new process have only been published in, you know, who, who are not really famous, right? There's only so many famous names that you can fit on the cover, and you don't need every single story in the book to be by a famous author. You need uh, enough of the big names to where uh, fans of those authors will be interested in picking up the book, and then you want to introduce them to these new authors that you're publishing because, because their, their material is just great. And frankly, as somebody who's only been writing fiction since 2010 myself, I find it very important to have anthologists and magazine editors buying material from people like me because otherwise, how will we become a round of Gaimans and Martins and other big-name authors if we don't have the same opportunities? Yeah, I suppose it's a circle, really. I mean, like, I was speaking to some guy who uh, he spent 20 years writing before uh, any, a novel was picked up, like 20 years writing, and he only had a smattering of short stories. He said that it's a clo- it can be closed circuit at times, and to get experience, you need experience, and that can be extremely damaging. And if we don't have anyone who's reaching out and saying, hey, I like this story, I don't care who it's from, I want to pick it up, we're going to be, uh, be in a rut where we only see the same name again and again. So, and what's planned for next year, besides going back to the humor, humor uh, standard humor, what's planned? Like, have you got any uh, names, or have you got any other projects in the works? So I've been, I'm still pretty busy with UFO 4 and Funny Science Fiction. Both of these anthologists, uh, even though the submission window for UFO 4 is closed, there's tons of work to do still. Uh, we're at the point where sometime in the course of the next week, we should be finishing up with all the copy edits for the story. You know, and my artist should be turning in the interior illustrations for it as well. Uh, so then there's layout to be done and other work. And I'm reading for Funny Science Fiction right now. I'm reading the reprint submissions for that. So that's keeping me pretty busy. And uh, my schedule is such that I can start really thinking about the next volume around September, which is good timing because uh, I hope to uh, attend Worldcon and possibly other conventions and meet with more authors that I don't already know personally. And it's much easier to reach out to somebody and ask them for a story or ask them for a submission if you've met them and you know have established some sort of a rapport with them. So there are authors that I've reached out to uh, without naming any names that just never responded to me at all. Um, and that's not necessarily that unusual, but I feel like I could probably reach out to those same authors again if, I, if I've if i spoken to them in real life and they know that I'm not just a total lunatic from the internet, you know, but they can put the face to the name that uh, I may be able to get a story from them down the line. And I do have a, I do have a wish list, but at this point I'll, uh, I'll demur on that and I'll, I'll wait until I can actually get some of these people involved. Having said that, every year we've been able to raise the bar. I mean, we went from having, you know, Mike Resnick, I think, was, uh, you know, by far the biggest name that we had in the in the very first UFO book. 
And then we've added, you know, Mike has been with us in every single volume, but we've added people like, Bob, you know, Bob Silverberg and Piers Anthony and Esther Friesner, uh, you know, and of course now George uh, Martin and, and Neil Gaiman. And so, you know, we're constantly, um, I'm, I'm always looking for, you know, for some really cool authors to, uh, you know, to, to introduce to the series as headliners and, uh, and slowly building up that Rolodex. So uh, you can certainly hope to see more of that in the next year. I just, I just don't have the exact answers yet. All right. Well, we will be definitely looking. Uh, definitely looking forward to it. Uh, UFO Four comes out in November, as you said. It will be packed full of twenty-three stories, full of dark humor. Alex, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. So the first story up is "Price of Allegiance" by Alex Schwarzman. It was originally published in Galactic Creatures. The narrator is Mark Nelson. Mark was years ago on Starship Sova. Oh man, one of the very first narrators there. After getting a BA in radio and television, he spent the next 28 years in human resources, the graveyard of a useless degree. After being laid off, he decided to start narrating audiobooks and he's been doing it since 2006. Go on there, Mark. So... The Starship Sova is very proud to present Price of Allegiance by Alex Schwartzman. Mr. Tobin, there is a cicada here to see you. Alistair Tobin, Earth's ambassador to the Galactic Union, was more than a little surprised. In his eight years of service, he could count on one hand the number of times anyone had visited his office on Union Central Station. On the rare occasion when someone had business to conduct with the humans, they sent him a message. For a member of the Union's oldest and most influential species to show up at his doorstep was unprecedented. Ask it in, Tobin responded via intercom. An alien walked in, folding its wings. It was short, corpulent, and had thin, veined wings extending from its midsection. Welcome on behalf of humanity. I'm honored by your presence. A wall panel emitted a series of high-pitched sounds, translating the traditional greeting into the guest's native language. Thank you. On behalf of the Union, I'm honored to be here, said the cicada. On behalf of the Union. The visitor was indicating that it was here on official Union business, rather than representing the interests of its own species. Your people said the cicada without preamble, have been restless. They wish for more access to the Union database. Uncertain of the visitor's intentions, Tobin chose his words carefully. It's tough being at the bottom of the heap. Galactic Union facilitated the exchange of art and technology among intelligent species. Each race contributed its best advances in everything from physics and philosophy to music and architecture. Members were allowed to benefit from others' knowledge, but only based on the value of their own contributions. This was a sore point for Tobin and for humanity. As one of the most junior members, Earth had precious little new knowledge to contribute, and was therefore given few of the Union's scientific wonders in return. There is no hurry, said the cicada. Have we not provided for your most urgent needs? You have. We are immensely grateful for the medicines and agricultural technologies the Union had supplied, 
We've cured the worst of the diseases that plagued us, and solved world hunger. But you must understand that humans are an ambitious and impatient people. Our inability to earn much credit toward new technology is, Tobin searched for the right word, frustrating. There may be an opportunity that is uniquely suited for your people's competitive mentality, said the cicada. The Union finds itself in need of peacekeepers. Soldiers? asked Tobin. Forgive me, but we've been repeatedly told that there has never been an interspecies war, not even before the Galactic Union was initially formed half a million years ago. It is true that there has never been such conflict in our recorded history, said the cicada, until now. After years spent at Union Central, Earth gravity took a little getting used to. Being the center of attention in a room full of the most powerful people on the planet didn't help matters either. Tobin shifted, his feet protesting against carrying what felt like an added thirty pounds. So, what you're saying, Mr. Tobin, said the Chinese Prime Minister, is that the Galactic Union wants to use humans as cannon fodder. It shouldn't come to that, sir, Tobin countered quickly. They're merely asking us to guard some of the planets deemed as likely invasion targets. It is hoped that a show of strength will deter an attack. Then why don't they just do it themselves? grumbled the Brazilian foreign minister, just loudly enough for the assembly to hear him. Because when shit hits the fan, which it almost certainly will, said the president of Russia, humans are violent enough to actually fight it out. Most other races don't have the spine for it. Sometimes, literally. It's true that we were asked to help because humanity didn't breed out all of its violent instincts yet, said Tobin. Their words, not mine. We're not the only ones involved. Several of the other young races are being asked to contribute for much the same reason. This is an incredibly dangerous proposition, said the American vice president. We're being asked to possibly engage in a war with a violent alien race, something that has never been done before, I might add. What if they decide to take the conflict to us directly, by attacking Earth? These particular aliens are causing havoc on the other end of the galaxy, said Tobin. Union scientists assure us that the aggressors don't have the technology to traverse these kinds of distances. This is yet another reason we were among the races asked to volunteer. Our own technology is hardly up to Union standards either, pointed out the Brazilian. Indeed, human spacefaring technology was barely good enough to get admitted into the Union, but embarrassingly inadequate when compared to most other races. Tobin was taxied to Union Central by an Alarian shuttle. It would have taken him twenty years to get there on a human ship. That's just it, said Tobin. The Union will provide transportation and share a number of interesting gadgets with us to make this mission work. We also stand to earn a generous credit toward accessing the Union Information Bank if we succeed. We'll gain a hundred years' worth of technological advancement in just a few months. That is alluring, admitted the Chinese Prime Minister. Yet how many men must we send to be slaughtered in exchange? It was going to be a long meeting. By the time human defense forces arrived at their first designated planet, it was already too late. General Amado Kalimba, 
decorated hero of the Thailand pacification and the Second Iranian War, stood on the hill overseeing the alien settlement, or what was left of it. The settlement was blasted from orbit and thoroughly destroyed. Smoldering skeletons of structures and upturned roads were all that remained. There were no survivors. The general, who grew up in the Central African Republic and was no stranger to violence, was shaken by the view. "'Excuse me, sir,' called out an adjutant. "'There is an alien here claiming to be an envoy from the invaders, and he wants to speak to you.' The envoy was bipedal, about five feet tall and vaguely humanoid in appearance. It reminded the general of all the rubber-faced imaginary aliens from the previous century's science fiction TV shows. "'My name is Ki Rata, and my people are called the Nga,' said the alien. "'I understand you are the leader of the human regiment here.' The general gaped at Ki Rata, saying nothing. According to Union strategists, the Nga should not have been aware that humanity existed— let alone be prepared for their arrival. May I presume by your reaction that you are disconcerted by my knowledge of your species and ability to speak your language? Ki Rata was half right. Only after he said so did the general realize that the envoy did not appear to be using a translation device. Please do not be concerned. Our intentions are to offer your people an alliance. An alliance did not seem to work out well for those guys, said the general, pointing at the ruins below. The Shezrat that started a colony here were not offered an alliance by the Nga, said the envoy. In fact, they were warned against expanding into our territory, but elected to colonize anyway. Our harsh subsequent action was necessitated by their choices. No translation device? The bastard speaks better English than me, thought the general. Surely it wasn't necessary to annihilate them, said Kulingba. There are so many viable planets out there, it hardly makes sense to fight over any one of them. That is precisely the kind of propaganda the Galactic Union utilizes to justify their policies. Just like your people, the Nga recently joined the Union— we were fortunate to quickly discover important secrets the older races are keeping. As a sign of good faith, I will share some of this information with you. Go on, said General Kulingba cautiously. The most crucial detail you need to know is that desirable planets are, while plentiful now, not nearly as inexhaustible as the Union would have you believe. Computer models show that Every viable planet in our galaxy will be colonized in the next thousand years. Space colonization works on an exponential growth principle. Every colony you establish today will develop the resources and population necessary to expand and colonize several new planets within decades. Therefore, if the Union manages to delay the expansion of species like yours by even a few years, it will cost you thousands of colony planets at the end game. Ki Rata pointed toward the destroyed settlement. Species like the Shezrat and the Cicadas set up the Union to extract maximum benefit from younger races and annex as many planets as they can while feeding us mere crumbs of their technology. When my people learned the truth, we would not stand for this. 
we declared a modest section of space directly adjacent to our home planet closed to colonization by other species. The Union refused to recognize our claim, so here we are, forced to defend our territory by whatever means necessary. We have a number of allies and supporters among the Union, Kiritah continued. That is how we learned of its plan to deceive other races into going to war against us. I hope to convince you to ally with us instead. General Kolingba listened intently as Ki Rata laid out the basis of the proposed alliance. I'm not authorized to make any sort of deals, he finally said, but I'll bet my superiors would love to talk to you. This was only the second time Tobin had visited this office. The first time was when he got appointed as Earth's ambassador to the Union. That earned him a brief meeting with his boss's boss, for some encouragement and a shot of obnoxiously expensive cognac. The Secretary General's office hadn't changed much in eight years, except that this time around he was unlikely to be offered a beverage or any kind words. Secretary Singh paced in front of the jumbo-sized window overlooking the Manhattan skyline. "'I'm very disappointed in you, Tobin,' he said. "'You've been making quite a nuisance of yourself lately, whispering dissent in all the wrong ears and spreading disinformation.' Singh was working himself up to one of his infamous rants. "'They say that when the French ambassador's office wouldn't schedule a meeting, you accosted him in front of his mistress's apartment building.' You're acting like some sort of a lobbyist, or worse yet, a journalist with an axe to grind. This kind of behavior is way beyond your mandate. With all due respect, Secretary General, said Tobin, the subject at hand falls precisely within my mandate. Decisions are being made that will affect Earth's relationships with all the other intelligent races in the cosmos, relationships on which, like it or not, I'm your top expert." I am convinced that we are moving in a very dangerous direction, and I will talk to as many politicians as I have to in order to help them see that. Making decisions is our job, snapped Singh. Your job is to put a positive spin on them afterward. You don't get to influence policy, and you certainly don't get to sabotage the peace talks. Peace talks? When the Nga asked us to kindly stay out of their space, those were peace talks— when Earth agreed to stand down and not interfere with Nga expansion within their own corner of the galaxy, that could also be considered peace talks. But providing materiel and logistical support in their war against the Union in exchange for whatever technology their shadow allies might pilfer from the Union database? That really can't be called peace talks anymore, not even by a politician. Strangely, Tobin's outburst appeared to calm Singh rather than anger him further. I don't understand you. For years you wind in your reports about how slowly the Union feeds us anything useful, how inconsequential Earth's position is in the galaxy. The Nga are willing to treat us like equals and share far more technology than the Union ever did, and you turn up your nose at them. I don't trust them, said Tobin. This key retard character is like some kind of a devil. He pushes us deeper and deeper into a half-baked rebellion. The Union may not have made it too easy for us, but we can thrive within it, given enough time. Perhaps you've spent too much time off-world, said Singh, rubbing shoulders with aliens, coming around to their way of thinking. 
I hope that you remember where your true loyalties lie when it matters. Tobin looked his superior straight in the eye. We may disagree on the method, sir, but rest assured that our goals and loyalties are the same. I'll do whatever is necessary to protect Earth's interests. Always. This, Tobin laid a small suitcase on his desk, is what we call a Trojan horse. Back at his office on Union Central, Tobin asked the cicada to meet him, and it obliged. The reference eludes me, said the cicada. It's a military strategy from my people's past. It involves sneaking a weapon into the enemy stronghold in order to launch an attack from within. In this particular case, it's a bomb powerful enough to destroy Union Central. Having me, a known Union sympathizer, bring it aboard appealed to my superior's finely tuned sense of the clandestine. The cicada examined the suitcase. Do you intend to detonate this? it asked. I started out in the military, said Tobin. My superiors could always count on me to carry out direct orders, regardless of my personal beliefs. Tobin pushed the suitcase toward the cicada. Not this time. The bomb is tuned to my DNA and is not to go off until I'm a safe distance away from this station. I'll remain here for as long as it takes your security experts to disarm the device. Meanwhile, there are other things you need to know. Tobin spoke for a long time, detailing the growing alliance between the humans and the Inga. He told the cicada about how Kira dangled offers of enticing technology, and how there were always those in the human government willing to take another step further over the line. How the Earth government agreed to help destroy Union Central in exchange for a princely prize, a copy of the entire Union database. Please understand, he continued, that most people on my world are not complicit in this conspiracy. An overwhelming majority of them don't even know that Nga exist. A handful of our leaders have been seduced by their rhetoric, but most humans would be appalled to learn what sort of business their government is willing to get involved in. The cicada studied the human closely. An ambassador to the Union is a very important post. One is chosen carefully for such a position. I'm sure your leaders had no doubt whatsoever of your loyalty when they sent you here. Why do you choose to betray their trust? Tobin had thought of little else in days. I'm intensely loyal to humanity, he said with conviction. I believe it is our leaders who are betraying the rest of us through their actions. Having spent eight years on Union Central, I firmly believe that the Union is exactly what it claims to be, a major force for peace and stability in our galaxy. I would not see it harmed, even at great personal cost to me and my people. Congratulations, said the cicada. You passed. Your leaders may have failed our test, but at least one human has passed. A human placed in position of great responsibility. Believe me when I say that this matters a great deal. A test? Tobin was dumbfounded. What do you mean? You see, Mr. Ambassador, Nga are a loyal member of the Union, and there was never any rebellion. They showed your people some ruins and told them some stories. 
you believed what you chose to believe. But— The office was spinning in front of Tobin's eyes. Why would you do this? As I stated, this was a test. A test of allegiance. Once a young species is ready, we provide them with increased access to the Union database. Much more of the Union technology is then at their disposal. We must make sure that we don't grant this power to those who are not yet prepared to wield it. Thus, every species is tempted to see if they might place their own advancement above the well-being of the Union. Nga passed their allegiance test only a few decades ago. This was humanity's turn, and it was performing very poorly until your personal act of courage has somewhat redeemed your people. What would have happened had I remained silent? It's best not to dwell on that, replied the cicada firmly. And now? Tobin pressed. Now your people get another chance. We will test them again in time. We will, of course, expect you to keep this conversation private. As far as your leaders are concerned, your explosive had failed to detonate. Word will shortly reach them that the Nga were defeated by the other young races. Earth will remain a junior member of the Union, and you personally will continue to be frustrated at how little new technology and information your people are provided with. But Earth will get another chance someday to prove that humanity has matured beyond its current state. The Cicada turned to leave. Alastair Tobin, traitor to humanity and its savior, sat alone in his Union Central office. He had to believe that humanity's better angels would prevail the next time around. People of Earth would pass the Union's next test and realize their full potential. Until then, it was going to be a slow couple of decades. There you go. Big thank you, Alex. That's great. Before we get into Alex's next story... Just a little heads up there, give you some few pointers. This month, just, you know, I was being, we're being kind of launching the newsletter and everything like that. The most we've ever had subscribed to that newsletter has been in this month. So big, big thank you for coming on there and, you know, jumping on the bandwagon and then signing up for the newsletter. Amazing. And I've got some, oh man, it's actually just like doing the show, do you know what I mean, the newsletter, that's what I kind of want to recreate in the kind of the, the kind of text format, and just even if it gets like as bigger and bigger, just keep on adding things there, and you know, fingers crossed, I've got this little kind of idea that I've just been in touch with someone to try and pull off as well, so hopefully we'll be, have more on that. If you want to join up to the newsletter and, you know, and get Starship Sova's Stories 1 and those shows from years ago myself and Kieran I was going to put one on this week's show but there's just too much going on man it's too much too much content but I will get round to putting one on honestly it's just like you see I just kind of cringe in the background there not listening to it but sign up come over to Starship Sova and have a look you know and sign up there and you will get everything so next up is Doubt by Alex Schwarzman, and it was originally published in Galaxy Edge magazine. Man, you kind of get better than that, man. This story is narrated by Iba Amicus. Now, we've, again, we've had Iba on 
numerous times, you know, do, do kind of narrations. It's just such a lovely voice there. Iba is a nomadic screenwriter, director based in Los Angeles and Seattle. Her first feature film is due for release in 2015. It's getting close, man. Iba, you know what I mean? It's just like, oh, oh, we've been building up for this kind of release of this film for so long. She's currently writing the pilot for a new show by Zombie Orpheus Entertainment. And there's a link under there as well. She regularly makes terrible life choices in the pursuit of stories. And is very bad at finding time to work on a website. Just a lovely voice. Eva, thank you so much for just sticking with Starship Sova. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Doubt by Alex Schwartzman. An operative's worst enemy is doubt. As the town car drove him through the patchwork of narrow streets in the heart of the Russian city of Kursk, the raptors stared at the window at the ramshackle storefronts, the board-up windows, the downtrodden locals hanging out in front of the ugly apartment buildings. If not for the ubiquitous Cyrillic graffiti, it would have looked much like a turn-of-the-century millennium Camden or Baltimore. Was coming here the right move? He'd never worked with these people before. On the other hand, their technology was far superior to anything his usual sources could procure. It was worth the risk. The raptor issued a mental command to his implant chip, and the car seemed to suddenly fill with a strong smell of tangerines. Activated by the changes in the chemistry of his brain, the computer altered the signals sent to his olfactory receptors. For the raptor, this deception was as good as the real thing. The scent of tangerines always calmed him down. The town car stopped in front of a four-story building, chrome and glass gleaming in the afternoon sun. The driver circled the car to open the door for the raptor. A bald man whose wide shoulders, straight back and military bearing didn't quite mesh with the white lab coat he was wearing, waited by the door. Welcome, Mr. Bauer he said, with a thick Russian accent, his W sounding like a V and his R a little too sharp. Follow me, please. He headed for the elevator without bothering to check if the raptor followed. Something felt off. The raptor had no evidence yet, couldn't quite put his finger on it, but years of dangerous missions had allowed for him to develop a sixth sense about such things. He considered his options. Getting away now might prove messy, and he needed what he came here for. He decided to see how things would play out, and rushed to catch up with his guide. Once the two of them boarded the lift, the doors closed. The speakers played Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture, and the elevator descended. It took over a minute for the elevator to reach its destination. The deceptively small building hid a huge insulation underneath it. The raptor's pulse quickened. He ordered the nanites in his bloodstream to tweak his serotonin levels slightly, enough to keep him calm, but not so much that he'd be unable to generate a quick adrenaline boost if he needed to fight. On the inside, the Antony Biorobotics building looked like a military installation. It was cavernous, compartmentalized, and brimming with well-hidden security equipment. The raptor's cybernetic implants identified every camera, tracked every motion sensor, mapped every potential weak spot. The raptor was ushered into an orderly office, where a blonde woman in her forties was seated behind the desk. Olga Tetrakov, Director of Operations. She introduced herself by way of greeting. She pointed at the chair across from her. Nice to meet you. The raptor sat down. 
Tetikov gave him an appraising look. You're older than I expected. Beg pardon? Let's dispense with the pretenses, shall we? She leaned back in her high-backed leather chair. Your passport says Chris Bauer, but it's just one of a dozen aliases you use that we know of. You're the Raptor, one of the world's most effective assassins. So they knew. Given anti-security apparatus and reach, the corporation probably knew much more about him than most governments, and there was no sense in denying the truth. Is that going to be a problem? She smiled. Not at all. My superiors are eager to cultivate a working relationship with you. I trust you're amenable to, how do you Americans say it, working something out in trade? I prefer to pay cash, said the raptor. Not an option, said Tetyakov. You're only here because we need to have your services. You could try our competitors in Taipei or Kutriba, but they're each at least a couple years behind us. She shrugged. High-end nano-enhancements are a seller's market. The raptor had already explored those other options, and he wanted the best. All right, he said. What do you want me to do? First, you'll need to prove yourself. A free sample, so to speak. The raptor frowned. Don't get me wrong, I'm a fan of your work, she said. But there are some on our board of directors who might look at your graying temples and your wrinkled face and doubt your effectiveness. What hoop do you want me to jump through? We got word that the renegade chemist is in town. Have you heard of him? The raptor's computer implant performed a quick net search. Pictures and texts projected onto the inner cornea of his left eye. He's an up-and-comer in the drug trade, he said, as though he knew about the man all along. Western Europe, mostly. He focused back on Tetyakov. He has good security. Our intel suggests he's in town for a quick meeting, with only a handful of bodyguards. Nothing you can't handle. We want you to take them all out. A message to any syndicate that contemplates setting up shop in our backyard. Fine, said the raptor. That's the free sample. What's the real job? One thing at a time, Raptor, said Tetyakov. One thing at a time. The car pulled to a stop at the edge of town, where affluent Russians had their summer homes. The renegade Tempest and his men are in the yellow dacha up the road, said the driver. I don't have a gun, said the Raptor. The driver looked at him impassively and didn't reply. The Raptor shrugged and got out of the car. His body went into fight mode as he approached the dacha. The nanites in his bloodstream activated chemical reactions, which released perfectly measured amounts of adrenaline and dopamine. He felt sharp and focused and in control. The raptor circled around and approached the dacha from the back. He jumped, cybernetic implants in his leg joints allowing him to clear the eight-foot fence. The raptor landed on his feet and ran towards the house. Utilizing both the mechanical and chemical enhancements to his body, he moved with incredible speed. In contrast, the first pair of bodyguards he discovered seemed like they were treading water. The raptor snapped one's neck before the man's gun was out of the holster. He jump-kicked the second man, who fell backward. By the time the second opponent got back on his feet, the raptor already held the first man's gun. He shot the bodyguard once between the eyes and moved on, hunting for the others.
Several minutes later, the raptor approached the inner sanctum of the dacha. Reloaded gun in hand, the nanite still pumping adrenaline into his bloodstream. All seven of the renegade chemist's bodyguards were professionals. They fought and died well. Would the chemist fight until his last, or would the raptor find him rolled up in a fetal position, begging for his life? The raptor had seen plenty of both in his career. Men who were about to die always revealed their true selves to him. There was no time for pretenses in their final moments. He slipped into the room to find the renegade chemist making tea. The drug lord was in his sixties, dressed in a thick bathrobe worn over a plain white undershirt and linen pants, his gray hair and beard neatly trimmed. The chemist filled a porcelain cup with steaming liquid from a vintage samovar and gently set it on the matching saucer. Only then did he look up at the raptor. Are my men dead? The chemist spoke with a faint German accent. His voice was even and his face serene. The raptor nodded, his eyes darting around the room. It was sparsely furnished and he detected no traps. Pity, said the chemist. They were competent and loyal, a rare combination these days. He picked up another cup and filled it from the samovar. Would you have some tea with me before you kill me? When the raptor hesitated, the chemist smiled and took a small sip from the cup he offered the assassin. See, perfectly safe. The raptor scanned the table area. There were no hidden weapons. He approached and accepted the cup. You're taking this remarkably well, he said. There's a fable about an emperor who knew that one of his generals was about to assassinate him said the chemist. The emperor invited the general over to a meeting in his garden, alone. The other man was so impressed by this show of trust that he didn't strike, and ultimately became one of the emperor's most loyal supporters. The renegade chemist drank from his cup. Some people think the moral of the story is to throw yourself at the mercy of your enemies. I think what really happened is that they had time to negotiate, and the general got himself a better deal. Perhaps we can negotiate, too. The raptor took a sip. The tea was aromatic and rich. I doubt it, he said. Why not? You have no personal grudge, do you? You're here doing a job. The raptor nodded again. Then it's only a matter of price. The chemist smiled. I have enough money, said the raptor. You can't give me what I want. Try me, said the chemist. Information? Resources? I have both in abundance. What do you know about the anti-corporation? Asked the raptor. Ah, it does make sense. I am in Kursk to meet with my contact from anti. Most of my other enemies wouldn't even know I was here. They're one of my suppliers. They manufacture synthetic drugs of better quality than most of the crap sold on the streets. The chemist swirled the tea in his cup and stared at the liquid. We made good money together, but they've been growing fast... Perhaps they got too big to be making a few extra million on the black market. So they're sweeping old embarrassments, like me, under the rug. What do you know about their nanorobotics operation? The renegade chemist shrugged. Anti started out as a defense contractor for the Russian army and grew from there. They're a huge multinational conglomerate that makes everything from nanites to baby formula. The old man glanced at the clock on his desk. His voice remained even but the raptor could see beads of sweat forming on his forehead. 
If I want an overview, I'd have read their Wikipedia entry. You got nothing I can use. The raptor set down his cup and aimed the gun at the old man's head. Wait, I can get you dirt on Auntie. Let me just make a few phone calls. The chemist's hands were shaking now, sweat rolling down his face. You're stalling for time, but you already know that your tactic has failed, said the raptor. I should have been unconscious on the ground less than a minute after I took a sip of your tea, but my body is at least as adept at neutralizing the toxin as yours. We can still make a deal. There was fear on the drug dealer's face, his calm facade completely demolished. The difference between you and the Emperor from your story is that he did negotiate in good faith, said the raptor. He didn't try to poison his rival. The renegade chemist managed a weak smile. Would good faith have made any difference at all? The raptor contemplated this for a moment. No, he said. He fired two bullets into the renegade chemist's eye and walked out without looking back. The board is suitably impressed, said Tetyakov. That was amateur hour, said the raptor. No preparation, no weapons, and a crime scene that gives the local press plenty to report about. The truly impressive operations are the ones where the general public never finds out. The publicity suits our needs. Tetyakov didn't elaborate. Why don't you tell me what you really want from me, said the raptor. We have reason to believe this site is going to get hit by Mercury's team, said Tretyakov. We want to stop her, with extreme prejudice. You want me to go up against the second best assassin in the world? Your nanites aren't worth that. Tretyakov chuckled. Aren't they? Every day you are getting a little bit slower. Your aim just a little bit less steady. You are getting older, Raptor, and age is an enemy even you cannot defeat. At this rate, Mercury isn't going to remain second best for long. Tretikoff released her palms on the table and leaned towards him. Anti-corporation has the most advanced nanite technology in the world. Do you want to roll the dice and wait a year or two, hoping that one of our competitors catches up soon? Or do you want them now? Millions of tiny robots working tirelessly to keep you at the top of your game. The executive and the assassin stared each other down. The raptor thought back to the decades of surgery he had endured to make him more than human. Implants to improve his body's various functions well beyond the norm. Servos grafted into his joints to give him the boost in strength and speed. Generations of nanobots floating in his bloodstream, from the crude early technologies to the latest and most sophisticated miniature machines. All of that allegedly made outdated by Auntie's latest advances. If their tech was at all what it was promised to be, he could be even faster, stronger, more lethal than ever. And if not, there was always the emergency protocol. I'll do it, said Raptor. A self-satisfied smirk spread over Tretyakov's face. There's a catch, she said. The nanites fuse themselves directly into the host nervous system. This procedure is extremely painful. She gave the raptor an appraising look. Then again, I heard you enjoy pain. Certainly explains the countless elective surgeries you've had. The raptor didn't reply.
His face betrayed no emotion. He just stared at Tretyakov impassively, until she shrugged and summoned an assistant to schedule the procedure. The sparse room where the procedure was to take place reminded him of a similar space, half a world away and 27 years ago. Back then he'd had another name, another job, another life. He was a junior CIA agent assigned to the U.S. Embassy in Jakarta. He was there when the bomb went off. He remembered no details of that. One minute he was going over paperwork at his desk, and the next he woke up in a hospital bed. There were burns and bruises all over his body. His head was bandaged in layers of gauze, leaving only a thin opening for his eyes. And yet, he felt no pain. I've never seen anything like this, the doctor told him later. There's a small bit of shrapnel lodged deep in your brain tissue. It's beyond our ability to surgically remove safely, and by all rights, it should have already killed you. The doctor leafed through a pile of scans and blood tests. You seem totally fine. It hasn't even impaired your motor functions. Are you a religious man? I'm an atheist myself, but this is the closest thing I've ever seen to a miracle. The doctor was wrong. He wasn't fine at all. He tasted nothing when he ate his food. He couldn't smell the anesthetics or anything else around him. And he still felt no pain. Alone in his hospital room, he used manicure scissors to cut into the skin on the back of his hand. He watched with fascination as the blood swelled from the gash. When he made the cut, he felt only the dull pressure of metal against skin. He was scared, which is why he made the mistake of telling the doctor. The man was incredulous. He ran a series of tests but had no answers. The next day, a CIA official arrived and said they would be transporting him stateside, effective immediately. He didn't want to become a guinea pig, a lab rat for the agency doctors to poke and study. So he ran, abandoning his wife and daughter, leaving behind his life and even his name. Chris Bauer was born. It wasn't until a few years later that he earned the nickname of the Raptor. Cold-blooded and vicious, they said. He merely wanted to raise enough money to get cured, and his CIA-trained skill set would always be in demand on the black market. The Raptor had discovered no cure for his condition, but he'd never stopped working. The freak accident robbed him of both pain and pleasure. All of his feelings dulled to the point where no external stimulation was meaningful. But he could still feel pride, the satisfaction of being very good at what he did. He performed well and was getting progressively more dangerous jobs. Missions that paid handsomely but required more of him than merely the ability to shrug off pain. That's when the raptor had discovered cybernetic enhancements. The edge they gave him and the ease with which his body handled even the most invasive surgery. A string of procedures followed. The raptor was in an arms race against other operatives, against the ever more sophisticated security systems, and against time itself. One of his most recent acquisitions was a batch of nanites that fooled his brain into thinking he once again had a sense of smell. It stimulated any scent he desired on demand, which for him usually meant tangerines. The raptor thought this was even better than regaining his natural olfactory functions. The raptor wondered at what other things he might gain through technology that would allow him to further surpass his humanity. 
He nodded to the men and women in surgical masks who towered over him and allowed the general anesthesia being delivered through the IV drip to put him to sleep. When the alarms went off announcing the attack, the raptor was glad the waiting was finally over. The anti-corporation had installed him in the ground floor office, stuffed with surveillance equipment. Officially, he was recuperating from the procedure. The new nanites were already doing their job. The raptor felt sharper, stronger, more alert than ever. A bottle of painkillers sat unopened in his desk drawer. He'd been frustrated by days of pointless waiting, by the passive nature of the mission. He'd roamed the building, checking and rechecking the security systems, and coming up with a plan of attack he'd deploy were he in Mercury's shoes, then figuring out ways to counter them. He'd been reasonably sure he'd be prepared for any stratagem his rival might attempt. In the end, Mercury failed to surprise him. By the time her team took out the perimeter guards and entered the building, he was in fight mode. He moved impossibly fast, taking out her team one by one. They were good, far better than the chemist's bodyguards. Some were even augmented with a handful of cyber implants of their own, but their frail human bodies were no match for the raptor's nano-enhanced perfection. He killed them quickly and efficiently, until only Mercury was left. She moved towards him, her reflexes faster than any opponents he'd ever faced. He came at her, knocking the gun from her hand. When she saw him up close, her eyes went wide and she stopped fighting. The raptor trained the gun on her but didn't fire, surprised by this move. She stared at his face. Dad? The raptor staggered back, shocked. He studied Mercury. She was five foot ten, a slight build, comely but not beautiful, non-threatening and non-memorable, perfect for covert work. He could see a patchwork of tiny telltale scars on her upper neck. She had an implant chip of her own, a brutally painful upgrade for someone without his unique condition. Could it be? The facial features, the age. The raptor thought back to his family, to the little girl he was forced to abandon. It had been so long. Was this a trick? He retreated several steps, kept his expression neutral and his hand steady. The gun aimed at her heart. It's me. Lay. Don't you recognize your own daughter? She took a step forward. I've been looking for you for a very long time. Whoever this stranger was, she knew his daughter's name. It's a deception, a trick to make you lower your guard, said a voice in his head. The anti-nanobots let the raptor's new employers talk to him whenever they pleased. It was perhaps the least palatable new feature, and he looked forward to disabling it as soon as this contract was fulfilled. Although the communication was one way, they also monitored the security feeds. Take her out now, before it's too late. You're such a bastard, said Mercury. Kill her now! The raptor stared at her, motionless. I've been playing out this scene in my head for years, said Mercury. What I'd say when I finally met you? How eloquently I'd convince you that it was wrong of you to run. How it devastated Mom and almost screwed me up. How you might react to all this. 
dozens of scenarios playing over and over. She looked at the raptor, waiting for him to say something. It's psychological warfare. She's softening you up. I'm sorry, he said after a long pause. The agency wasn't going to let me come home anyway. They would have locked me away in some lab and experimented on me for the rest of my life. Running was the only option. Lock you away? The agency takes care of its own. We would have trained you, protected you, made you better. They said you were good before your accident. I'm not at all certain that losing your ability to feel pain made you a better one, but we could have worked with that. So that is how you tolerate the procedure so well. Very interesting. The raptor was angry at Mercury for carelessly spilling his secret, but the ramifications of that could wait. Your CIA? Yeah, said Mercury. I joined up partially because they offered me the resources to look for you. She took another step closer. You lost more than you know in that explosion. You lost your humanity. Have you ever bothered to learn about what happened to your family? Did it even occur to you? Don't let her get too close. Some faint echo of my father is still inside you, or you would have pulled the trigger. It's never too late for redemption. Come back into the fold. He stared at Mercury, trying hard to see the grown-up version of his leg. Did she have his eyes? Her mother's cheekbones? He couldn't be sure. Why are you here? I'm here to save you, amongst other things. She lifted up a backpack. There's an EMP grenade in here. I have to get inside and wipe out Auntie's nanite lab. Save me? You didn't even know I'd be here. It adds up, said Mercury. They're aware of your quest to better yourself through science. They must have lured you in with the promise of superior technology. But it's a trap. Their new nanites are a Trojan horse. Once they're activated, Auntie will literally own you. She'll say anything to complete her mission. Help me do this, said Mercury. Help me and come back home. An operative's worst enemy is doubt. He stared into Mercury's eyes while he was trying to decide. Eyes that looked so much like his own. The raptor lowered his gun. We didn't want to do this, but you've left us no choice. The raptor's body tensed up as millions of nanites fused to his nerve endings activated at once, wrestling to control his motor functions away from his own mind. The raptor twitched once, fighting for control. What's happening? Mercury frowned and took another half-step forward. Then her eyes widened. You already did it. You already did it, didn't you? You already had the procedure. The raptor wanted to speak, but his body wasn't responding. He felt like a marionette on strings, the puppet masters forcing his body to make sluggish, jerky moves. The anti-nanites controlled his nervous system, but not his brain chemistry. He could still issue commands to his implant chip. The raptor activated the emergency protocol. He never expected to use the fail-safes like this. It was a way to remove a batch of nanites with faulty design or programming. 
millions of pre-existing, self-replicating nanites in his bloodstream activated with the sole purpose of finding and destroying every microscopic robot that didn't share their digital signature. They would purge the anti-tech robots from his body and spare the older, more reliable upgrades. But it would take time. We can still help you, said Mercury. Let me complete my mission. The EMP blast will take out all the nanites they cooked up here, including the ones inside you. She reached into the backpack. The anti-nanites pulled on the marionette strings. In one fluid motion, the raptor raised the gun and fired several bullets into Mercury's heart. She gasped and fell backwards. The operative's worst enemy is doubt. The raptor couldn't be sure if the woman sprawled on the linoleum tile floor of the lobby was really lay, or perhaps a competent agent who sought to take advantage of his Achilles heel. All he could think of was the last day he spent with his family. The three of them sat on the couch, watching cartoons and peeling tangerines. Seven-year-old Leia laughed, her little hands covered in citrus juice. The scent of tangerines filled the living room. She was an imposter. She would have said anything to get you to lower the weapon. After all these years, it was difficult to be sure. Was the raptor feeling pain? or just turmoil. He couldn't be certain. You were wavering. We had no choice but to take charge. The raptor wiggled his fingers. He was slowly regaining control as the nanites in his bloodstream exterminated their unwelcome brethren. In a few minutes, the purge would be complete. Then, all too quickly, he found himself able to move again. We released you. Take a few minutes. Then... Come inside. He took small steps towards the body. Should he hug her? Was that the appropriate, the human thing to do? He settled for reaching out and touching her forehead. He listened to his heart, but it remained numb, like his fingers against Mercury's skin. He reached for the backpack and took out the EMP grenade. He held up the sleek device the size of a shoebox and studied it. Somewhere, faceless anti-executives watched his every move, ready to press the button and to steal his body again at the first sign of trouble. They didn't know that his nanites were all but wiped out by now. The raptor could carry the EMP right into the heart of their precious lab and press the button, and there was no one around who could even slow him down. But then his nanites would be destroyed too, along with most of his cyber implants. Nearly three decades of surgeries, enhancements and upgrades would be negated with a single click. He would lose his advantages, his speed and his strength. He'd become nothing more than a damaged human. The raptor dropped the device onto the floor and stepped on it hard, grinding it into the ground with his heel. I'm coming in, he said to the cameras. Then he walked to the elevator. Behind him, the puddle of Mercury's blood was pooling towards the broken mess of plastic and microchips. He stepped inside the elevator. The sound of Tchaikovsky's 1812 overture from the speakers mixed with the scent of tangerines the raptors had allowed himself. The melody filled the elevator cabin as it descended into the bowels of the building. An operative's worst enemy is doubt, but for once, 
the raptor was certain of his next move. Secure in their belief that they could control him, the anti-officials would let him get as close as he needed. He wondered what truths about herself Tretyakov would reveal in the final moments of her life. The elevator came to a stop and dinged, the door sliding open. The raptor tightened the grip on his gun and stepped outside. There you go. Whoa, be honest, man. Come on, be honest. Eva, thank you so much for that stunning narration, man. Atmospheric of what? Do you know what I mean? And Alex, big thank you. Like I say, thank you so much coming on and, you know, let me have these stories. Going to play another one by Alex next week as well. I just realised when I was kind of putting the show together that there was actually three stories by Alex. One was a little bit of flash fiction, which I totally missed. So I'm going to add that into next week's show as well. Yes, how are you, man? I'm only human, man. I'm not the kind of skilled host that you all think I am. So that is today's show. Like I say, I hope you enjoyed it. It's been fun. And like I say, Alex, what a great writer. I've uh, I've even went and bought myself those, that little kind of comic anthology. He's got, there's three of them out there now. I've bought myself the third one just to kind of, because there's all big writers in there. And if it's kind of, that's, I think, one thing as well. Science fiction and humor, you know what I mean? Just getting humor right, you know, getting science fiction right is a hard thing. Getting the humor right as well, do you know what I mean? That's a really hard kind of task to do. So looking forward to dipping into that that collection so that's it i hope you've enjoyed it listen listen man listen you know what i mean there's something out in my personal life which is just kind of creeping to an edge so i might i might tell you about it sometime down the line but it kind of involves kind of day jobs and stuff like that so if you can support listen support this show you know what i mean monthly donations Bloody hell, at this minute, I'm laughing. I'm I'm laughing because I'm terrified, to be quite honest. So anyway, support Starship's over. You know what I mean? At this moment, we could kind of do with it. One day I might tell you, you know, what's going on. Until then, I would just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.